Book Third, Chapter Second, Parts Four to Six of Tono Bungay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Tono Bungay by H. G. Wells. Book Third, Chapter Second, Parts Four to Six. Four. What do you think of it, George? he insisted. When I said I thought of it, I don't now recall. Only I have very distinctly the impression of meeting for a moment my aunt's impenetrable eye. And anyhow, he started in with his accustomed energy to rip the mysteries of the costly life and become the calmest of its lords. On the whole, I think he did it, thoroughly. I have crowded memories, a little difficult to disentangle, of his experimental stages, his experimental proceedings. It's hard at times to say which memory comes in front of which. I recall him as presenting on the whole a series of small surprises, as being again and again, unexpectedly, a little more self-confident, a little more polished, a little richer and finer, a little more aware of the positions and values of things and men. There was a time, it must have been very early, when I saw him deeply impressed by the splendors of the dining-room of the National Liberal Club. Heaven knows who our host was, or what that particular little feed was about now. All that sticks is the impression of our straggling entry, a string of six or seven guests, and my uncle looking about him at the numerous bright red-shaded tables, at the exotics in great majolica jars, at the shining ceramic columns and pilasters, at the impressive portraits of liberal statesmen and heroes and all that contributes to the ensemble of that palatial spectacle. He was betrayed into a whisper to me. "'This is all right, George,' he said. That artless comment seems almost incredible as I set it down. There came a time so speedily when not even the clubs of New York could have overawed my uncle, and when he could walk through the bowing magnificence of the Royal Grand Hotel to his chosen table in that aggressively exquisite gallery upon the river, with all the easy calm of one of Earth's legitimate kings. The two of them learnt the new game rapidly and well. They experimented abroad. They experimented at home. At Chislehurst, with the aid of a new, very costly, but highly instructive cook, they tried over everything they heard of that roused their curiosity and had any reputation for difficulty, from asparagus to plover's eggs. They afterwards got a gardener who could wait at table, and he brought the soil home to one. Then there came a butler. I remember my aunt's first dinner gown very brightly, and how she stood before the fire in the drawing-room, confessing once unsuspected pretty arms with all the courage she possessed, and looking over her shoulder at herself in a mirror. A ham, she remarked reflectively, must feel like this, just a necklace. I attempted, I think, some commonplace compliment. My uncle appeared at the door in a white waistcoat, and with his hands in his trouser pockets he halted and surveyed her critically. "'Couldn't tell you from a duchess, Susan,' he remarked. "'I'd like to have you painted, standing at the fire like that. Sergeant, you look spirited somehow. Lord, I wish some of those damned tradesmen at Wimblehurst could see you.' They did a lot of week-ending at hotels, and sometimes I went down with them. 
we seem to fall into a vast drifting crowd of social learners. I don't know whether it is due simply to my changed circumstances, but it seems to me there have been immensely disproportionate developments of the hotel-frequenting and restaurant-using population during the last twenty years. It is not only, I think, that there are crowds of people who, like we were, are in the economically ascendant phase, but whole masses of the prosperous section of the population must be altering its habits, giving up high tea for dinner and taking to evening dress, using the weekend hotels as a practice ground for these new social arts. A swift and systematic conversation to gentility has been going on, I am convinced, throughout the whole commercial upper-middle class since I was twenty-one. Curiously mixed was the personal quality of the people who saw in these raids. There were conscientiously refined and low-voiced people reeking with proud bashfulness. There were aggressively smart people using pet diminutives for each other loudly and seeking fresh occasions for brilliant rudeness. There were awkward husbands and wives quarreling furtively about their manners and ill at ease under the eye of the winter. Cheerfully amiable and often discrepant couples with a disposition to inconspicuous corners and the jolly sort affecting an unaffected ease plump, happy ladies who laughed too loud, and gentlemen in evening dress who subsequently got their pipes. And nobody you knew was anybody, however expensively they dressed, and whatever rooms they took. I look back now with a curious remoteness of spirit to those crowded dining rooms, with their dispersed tables and their inevitable red-shaded lights and the unsympathetic, unskillful waiters, and the choice of thig or glear, sir. I've not dined in that way, in that sort of place now, for five years. It must be quite five years, so specialized and narrow is my life becoming. My uncle's earlier motor-car phases work in with these associations, and there stands out a little bright vignette of the Hall of the Magnificent Bexhill-on-Sea, and people dressed for dinner, and sitting about amidst the scarlet furniture, satin and white enameled woodwork, until the gong should gather them, and my aunt is there, very marvelously wrapped about in a dust cloak and a cage-like veil, and there are hotel porters and under-porters very alert, and an obsequious manager. The tall young lady in black from the office is surprised into admiration, and in the middle of the picture is my uncle making his first appearance in that Eskimo costume I have already mentioned, a short figure, compactly immense, hugely goggled, wearing a sort of brown rubber proboscis, and surmounted by a table-land of motoring cap. 5. So it was we recognized our new needs as fresh invaders of the upper levels of the social system, and set ourselves quite consciously to the acquisition of style and savoir-faire. We became part of what is nowadays quite an important element in the confusion of our world, that multitude of economically ascended people who are learning how to spend money. It is made up of financial people, the owners of the businesses that are eating up their competitors, inventors of new sources of wealth, such as ourselves. It includes nearly all America as one sees it on the European stage. It is a various multitude having only this in common. They are all moving, and particularly their womankind are moving, from conditions in which means were insistently finite, things were few, 
and custom simple towards a limitless expenditure and the sphere of attraction of bond street fifth avenue and paris their general effect is one of progressive revolution of limitless rope they discover suddenly indulgences their moral code never foresaw and has no provision for elaborations ornaments possessions beyond their wildest dreams with an immense astonished zest they begin shopping begin a systematic adaptation to a new life crowded and brilliant with things shopped with jewels maids butlers coachmen electric broughams hired town and country houses they plunge into it as one plunges into a career as a class they talk think and dream possessions their literature their press turns all on that immense illustrated weeklies of unsurpassed magnificence guide them in domestic architecture in the art of owning a garden in the achievement of the sumptuous in motor cars in an elaborate sporting equipment in the purchase and control of their estates in travel and stupendous hotels once they begin to move they go far and fast acquisition becomes the substance of their lives they find a world organized to gratify that passion in a brief year or so they are connoisseurs they join in the plunder of the eighteenth century buy rare old books fine old pictures good old furniture their first crude conception of dazzling sweets of the newly perfect is replaced almost from the outset by a jackdaw dream of accumulating costly discrepant old things i seem to remember my uncle taking to shopping quite suddenly in the beckenham days and in the early chislehurst days he was chiefly interested in getting money and except for his onslaught on the beckenham house bothered very little about his personal surroundings and possessions i forget now when the change came and he began to spend some accident must have revealed to him this new source of power or some subtle shifting occurred in the tissues of his brain he began to spend and shop so soon as he began to shop he began to shop violently he began buying pictures and then oddly enough old clocks for the chislehurst house he bought nearly a dozen grandfather clocks and three copper warming pans after that he bought much furniture then he plunged into art patronage and began to commission pictures and to make presents to churches and institutions his buying increased with a regular acceleration its development was a part of the mental changes that came to him in the wild excitements of the last four years of his ascent towards the climax he was a furious spender he shopped with large unexpected purchases he shopped like a mind seeking expression he shopped to astonish and dismay shopped crescendo shopped fortissimo con molto espressione until the magnificent smash of crest hill eroded his shopping forever always it was he who shopped my aunt did not shine as a purchaser it is a curious thing due to i know not what fine strain in her composition that my aunt never set any great store upon possessions she plunged through that crowded bazaar of vanity fair during those feverish years spending no doubt freely and largely but spending with detachment and a touch of humorous contempt for the things even the old things that money can buy it came to me suddenly one afternoon just how detached she was as i saw her going towards her harningham sitting up as she always did rather stiffly in her electric brougham regarding the glittering world with interested and ironically innocent blue eyes from under the brim of a hat that defied comment 
No one, I thought, would sit so apart if she hadn't dreams. And what are her dreams? I'd never thought. And I remember, too, an outburst of scornful description after she had lunched with a party of women at the Imperial Cosmic Club. She came round to my rooms on the chance of finding me there, and I gave her tea. She professed herself tired and cross, and flung herself into my chair. "'George!' she cried. "'The things women are! Do I stink of money?' "'Lunching?' I asked. She nodded. "'Plutocratic ladies?' "'Yes.' Oriental type? Oh, like a burst harem, bragging of possessions. They feel you. They feel your clothes. George, to see if they are good. I soothed her as well as I could. They are good, aren't they? I said. It's the old pawn shop in their blood, she said, drinking tea, and then in infinite disgust. They run their hands over your clothes. They paw you. I had a moment of doubt whether perhaps she had not been discovered in possession of unsuspected forgeries. I don't know. After that, my eyes were quickened, and I began to see for myself women running their hands over other women's furs, scrutinizing their lace, even demanding to handle jewelry, appraising, envying, testing. They have a kind of etiquette. The woman who feels says, What beautiful sables! What lovely lace! The woman felt admits proudly, it's real, you know, or disavows pretension modestly and hastily, it's rot good. In each other's houses they peer at the pictures, handle the selvage of hangings, look at the bottoms of china. I wonder if it is the old pawn shop in the blood. I doubt if Lady Drew and the Olympians did that sort of thing, but here I may be only clinging to another of my former illusions about aristocracy and the state. Perhaps always possessions have been booty, and never anywhere has there been such a thing as house and furnishings native and natural to the women and men who made use of them. 6. For me, at least, it marked an epoch in my uncle's career when I learnt one day that he had chopped Lady Grove. I realized a fresh, wide, unpreluded step. He took me by surprise with a sudden change of scale from such portable possessions as jewels and motor-cars to a stretch of countryside. The transaction was Napoleonic. He was told of the place. He said, snap. There were no preliminary desirings or searchings. Then he came home and said what he had done. Even my aunt was for a day or so measurably awe-stricken by this exploit in purchase, and we both went down with him to see the house in a mood near consternation. It struck us then as a very lordly place indeed. I remember the three of us standing on the terrace that looked westward, surveying the sky-reflecting windows of the house, and a feeling of unwarrantable intrusion comes back to me. Lady Grove, you know, is a very beautiful house indeed, a still and gracious place, whose age-long seclusion was only effectively broken with the toot of the coming of the motor-car. An old Catholic family had died out in it, century by century, and was now altogether dead. Portions of the fabric are thirteenth century, and its last architectural revision was Tudor. Within, it is for the most part dark and chilly, save for two or three favored rooms, and its tall, windowed, oak-galleried hall. Its terrace is its noblest feature. A very wide, broad lawn it is, bordered by a low stone battlement. 
and there is a great cedar in one corner under whose level branches one looks out across the blue distances of the weald, blue distances that are made extraordinarily Italian in quality by virtue of the dark masses of that single tree. It is a very high terrace. Southward one looks down upon the tops of wayfaring trees and spruces, and westward on a steep slope of beechwood, through which the road comes. One turns back to the still old house, and sees a grey and lichenous façade with a very finely arched entrance. It was warmed by the afternoon light, and touched with the colour of a few neglected roses and a pyracanthus. It seemed to me that the most modern owner conceivable in this serene fine place was some bearded scholarly man in a black cassock, gentle-voiced and white-handed, or some very soft-robed grey gentlewoman. And there was my uncle holding his goggles in a sealskin glove, wiping the glass with a pocket-handkerchief, and asking my aunt if Lady Grove wasn't a bit of all right. My aunt made him no answer. The man who built this, I speculated, wore armor, and carried a sword. There's some of it inside still, said my uncle. We went inside. An old woman with very white hair was in charge of the place, and cringed rather obviously to the new master. She evidently found him a very strange and frightful apparition indeed, and was dreadfully afraid of him. But if the surviving present bowed down to us, the past did not. We stood up to the dark, long portraits of the extinguished race. One was a Holbein, and looked them in their sidelong eyes. They looked back at us. We all, I know, felt the enigmatical quality in them. Even my uncle was momentarily embarrassed, I think, by that invincibly self-complacent expression. It was just as though, after all, he had not bought them up and replaced them altogether, as though that, secretly, they knew better and could smile at him. The spirit of the place was akin to Bladesover, but touched with something older and remoter. That armor that stood about had once served in tilt-yards, if indeed it had not served in battle, and this family had sent its blood and treasure, time after time, upon the most romantic quest in history, to Palestine. Dreams, loyalties, place, and honor, how utterly had it all evaporated, leaving, at last, the final expression of its spirit these quaint painted smiles, these smiles of triumphant completion. It had evaporated, indeed, long before the ultimate Durgan had died, and in his old age he had cumbered the place with early Victorian cushions and carpets and tapestry tablecloths and invalid appliances of a type even more extinct, it seemed to us, than the Crusades. Yes, it was different from Bladesover. "'Bit stuffy, George,' said my uncle. "'They hadn't much idea of ventilation when this was built.' One of the paneled rooms was half filled with presses and a four-poster bed. "'Might be the ghost room,' said my uncle. "'But it did not seem to me that so retiring a family as the Durgans, "'so old and completely exhausted a family as the Durgans, "'was likely to haunt anybody. "'What living thing now had any concern with their honor and judgments "'and good and evil deeds?' Ghosts and witchcraft were a later innovation. That fashion came from Scotland with the Stuarts. Afterwards, prying for epitaphs, we found a marble crusader with a broken nose, under a battered canopy of fretted stone, outside the restricted limits of the present Duffield Church, and half buried in nettles. Ichabod, said my uncle. Eh? 
We shall be like that, Susan, some day. I'm going to clean him up a bit and put a railing to keep off the children. Old saved at the eleventh hour, said my aunt, quoting one of the less successful advertisements of Tono Bungay. But I don't think my uncle heard her. It was by our captured crusader that the vicar found us. He came round the corner at us briskly, a little out of breath. He had an air of having been running after us since the first toot of our horn had warned the village of our presence. He was an Oxford man, clean-shaven, with a cadaverous complexion and a guardedly respectful manner, a cultivated intonation and a general air of accommodation to the new order of things. These Oxford men are the Greeks of our plutocratic empire. He was a Tory in spirit, and what one may call an adapted Tory by stress of circumstances. That is to say, he was no longer a legitimist. He was prepared for the substitution of the new lords for old. We were pill-vendors, he knew, and no doubt horribly vulgar in soul. But then it might have been some polygamous Indian rajah, a great strain on a good man's tact, or some Jew with an inherited expression of contempt. Anyhow, we were English, and neither dissenters nor socialists, and he was cheerfully prepared to do what he could to make gentlemen of both of us. He might have preferred Americans for some reasons. They are not so obviously taken from one part of the social system and dumped down in another, and they are more teachable. But in this world we cannot always be choosers. So he was very bright and pleasant with us, showed us the church, gossiped informingly about our neighbors on the countryside, Tux the banker, Lord Boom the magazine and newspaper proprietor, Lord Carnaby that great sportsman, and old Lady Osprey. And finally he took us by way of a village lane, three children bobbed convulsively with eyes of terror for my uncle, through a meticulous garden to a big slovenly vicarage with faded Victorian furniture and a faded Victorian wife, who gave us tea and introduced us to a confusing family dispersed among a lot of disintegrating basket chairs upon the edge of a well-used tennis lawn. These people interested me. They were a common type, no doubt, but they were new to me. There were two lank sons who had been playing singles at tennis, red-eared youths growing black moustaches, and dressed in conscientiously untidy tweeds and unbuttoned and ungirt Norfolk jackets. There were a number of ill-nourished-looking daughters, sensible and economical in their costume. The younger, still with long brown stockinged legs, and the eldest present, there were, we discovered, one or two hidden away, displaying a large gold cross and other aggressive ecclesiastical symbols. There were two or three fox terriers, and a retrieverish mongrel, and an old, bloody-eyed, and very evil-smelling St. Bernard. There was a jackdaw. There was, moreover, an ambiguous, silent lady that my aunt subsequently decided must be a very deaf-paying guest. Two or three other people had concealed themselves at our coming and left unfinished teas behind them. Rugs and cushions lay among the chairs, and two of the latter were, I noted, covered with Union Jacks. The vicar introduced us sketchily, and the faded Victorian wife regarded my aunt with a mixture of conventional scorn and abject respect, and talked to her in a languid, persistent voice about people in the neighborhood whom my aunt could not possibly know. My aunt received these personalia cheerfully, with her blue eyes flitting from point to point, 
and coming back again and again to the pinched faces of the daughters and the cross upon the eldest's breast. Encouraged by my aunt's manner, the vicar's wife grew patronizing and kindly, and made it evident that she could do much to bridge the social gulf between ourselves and the people of family about us. I had just snatches of that conversation. Mrs. Merridew brought him quite a lot of money. Her father, I believe, had been in the Spanish wine trade. Quite a lady, though. And after that, he fell off his horse and cracked his brain pan and took to fishing and farming. I'm sure you'll like to know them. He's most amusing. The daughter had a disappointment and went to China as a missionary and got mixed up in a massacre. The most beautiful silks and things she brought back. You'd hardly believe. Yes, they gave them to propitiate her. You see, they didn't understand the difference, and they thought that as they'd been massacring people, they'd be massacred. They didn't understand the difference Christianity makes. Seven bishops they've had in the family. Married a papist and was quite lost to them. He failed some dreadful examination and had to go into the militia. So she bit his leg as hard as ever she could and he let go. Had four of his ribs amputated. Caught meningitis and was carried off in a week. Had to have a large piece of silver tube let into his throat. And if he wants to talk, he puts his finger on it. It makes him so interesting, I think. You feel he's sincere somehow, a most charming man in every way. Preserved them both in spirits, very luckily, and there they are in his study, though of course he doesn't show them to everybody. The silent lady, unperturbed by these apparently exciting topics, scrutinized my aunt's costume with a singular intensity and was visibly moved when she unbuttoned her dust cloak and flung it wide. Meanwhile, we men conversed. One of the more spirited daughters listened brightly, and the youths lay on the grass at our feet. My uncle offered them cigars, but they both declined. Out of bashfulness, it seemed to me, whereas the vicar, I think, accepted out of tact. When we were not looking at them directly, these young men would kick each other furtively. Under the influence of my uncle's cigar, the vicar's mind had soared beyond the limits of the district. This socialism, he said, seems making great headway. My uncle shook his head. We're too individualistic in this country for that sort of nonsense, he said. Everybody's business is nobody's business. That's where they go wrong. They have some intelligent people in their ranks, I am told, said the vicar. Writers and so forth. Quite a distinguished playwright, my eldest daughter was telling me. I forget his name. Millie, dear. Oh, She's not here. Painters, too, they have. This socialist, it seems to me, is part of the unrest of the age. But, as you say, the spirit of the people is against it. In the country, at any rate. The people down here are too sturdily independent in their small way, and too sensible altogether. It's a great thing for Duffield to have Lady Grove occupied again he was saying when my wandering attention came back from some attractive casualty in his wife's discourse. People have always looked up to the house, and considering all things, old Mr. Durgan really was extraordinarily good. Extraordinarily good. You intend to give us a good deal of your time here, I hope. I mean to do my duty by the parish, said my uncle. I'm sincerely glad to hear it. Sincerely. We've missed the house influence. An English village isn't complete, 
people get out of hand, life grows dull, the young people drift away to London. He enjoyed his cigar gingerly for a moment. We shall look to you to liven things up, he said, poor man. My uncle cocked his cigar and removed it from his mouth. What do you think the place wants? he asked. He did not wait for an answer. I've been thinking while you've been talking. Things one might do. Cricket, a good English game. Sports. Build a chaps a pavilion, perhaps. Then every village ought to have a miniature rifle range. Yes, said the vicar. Provided, of course, there isn't a constant popping. Manage that all right, said my uncle. Thing it'd be a sort of long shed. Painted red. British color. Then there's a union jack for the church and the village school. Paint the school red, too, perhaps. Not enough color about now. Too gray. Then a maypole. How far our people would take up that sort of thing, began the vicar. I'm all for getting that good old English spirit back again, said my uncle. Merry-makings. Lads and lasses dancing on the village green. Harvest home. Fairings. Yule log. All the rest of it. How would old Sally Glue do for a May Queen? asked one of the sons in the slight pause that followed. Or Annie Glassbound, said the other, with the huge virile guffaw of a young man whose voice has only recently broken. Sally Glue is eighty-five, explained the vicar, and Annie Glassbound is, well, a young lady of extremely generous proportions, and not quite right, you know, not quite right here. He tapped his brow. "'Generous proportions,' said the eldest son, and the guffaws were renewed. "'You see,' said the vicar, "'all the brisker girls go into service in or near London. "'The life of excitement attracts them, "'and no doubt the higher wages have something to do with it, "'and the liberty to wear finery, "'and generally freedom from restraint, "'so that there might be a little difficulty, perhaps, "'to find a May-Queen here, just at present, "'who was really young and, er, uh, pretty.' Of course, I couldn't think of any of my girls, or anything of that sort. We got to attract them back, said my uncle. That's what I feel about it. We got to buck up the country. The English country is a going concern still, just as the established church, if you'll excuse me saying it, is a going concern, just as Oxford is, or Cambridge, or any of those old, fine, old things. Only it wants fresh capital, fresh ideas, and fresh methods. Light railways, for instance, scientific use of drainage, wire-fencing machinery, all that. The vicar's face, for one moment, betrayed dismay. Perhaps he was thinking of his country walks amidst the hawthorns and honeysuckle. There's great things, said my uncle, to be done on modern lines, with village jam and pickles boiled in the country. It was the reverberation of this last sentence in my mind, I think, that sharpened my sentimental sympathy as we went through the straggling village street and across the trim green on our way back to London. It seemed that afternoon the most tranquil and idyllic collection of creeper-sheltered homes you can imagine. Thatch still lingered on a whitewashed cottage or two. Pyracanthus, wallflowers, and daffodils abounded and an unsystematic orchard or so was white with blossom above and gay with bulbs below i noted a row of straw beehives beehive shaped beehives of the type long since condemned as inefficient by all progressive minds and in the doctor's acre of grass a flock of two whole sheep was grazing 
No doubt he'd taken them on account. Two men and one old woman made gestures of abject vassalage, and my uncle replied with a lordly gesture of his great motoring glove. "'England's full of bits like this,' said my uncle, leaning over the front seat and looking back with great satisfaction. The black glare of his goggles rested for a time on the receding turrets of Lady Grove just peeping over the trees. "'I shall have a flagstaff, I think,' he considered. "'Then one could show when one is in residence. The villagers will like to know.' I reflected. "'They will,' I said. "'They're used to liking to know.' My aunt had been unusually silent. Suddenly she spoke. "'He says snap,' she remarked. He buys that place, and a nice old job of housekeeping he gives me. He sails through the village, swelling like an old turkey. And who'll have to scoot the butler? Me. Who's got to forget all she ever knew and start again? Me. Who's got to trek from Chislehurst and be a great lady? Me. You old bother. Just when I was settling down and beginning to feel at home. My uncle turned his goggles to her. Ah, this time it is home, Susan. We got there. End of Book Third, Chapter Second, Parts Four to Six. Recording by William Tomko.